Okay, Google, open the pod bay doors. I'm afraid I can't help with that yet. Okay, Google, open the doors now. I can't do that, but there's a spare key under the flower pot outside the pod bay airlock. You can let yourself in. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly movie podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. This week, we're talking about... 2001 A Space Odyssey. I feel, I've, I've, I feel like I should probably pause more but to, be, um, <laughs> to make it clear to the, to, the, to the listener that it's a colon and, and not a comma. Um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. In a stereo space odyssey, as the soundtrack goes. Um, it's Stanley Kubrick's classic 1968 science fiction film, one of the most influential science fiction films ever made. Um, it's generally regarded as a classic of the genre. It's hugely influential, casts a massive pop culture shadow. And I think that even if you haven't seen the movie, you've seen a lot of the movie through various pop culture. So you've seen it, you've absorbed it through, say, watching The Simpsons or through watching even stuff like, say, Star Trek and Star Wars are very influenced by it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think if um, if you if you've watched The Simpsons, you've, you've you've pretty much seen all of them. Yeah, you it, 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 you've recused yourself from from having to see anything else. Yeah, it, most of the bits are are in there. Most of the memorable bits are in there anyway. I think uh, we were talking about Psycho recently, and it's very much the same thing. Yeah, it's been sort of absorbed through the cultural sort of memory because I. I honestly, I didn't see this until I was in my teens, I think, until I was in my mid-teens. And by the time I'd seen it, I'd obviously, I'd seen The Simpsons uh, before I'd been watching The Simpsons as a kid. And I remember what, after I watched it, it was a lot of, oh, that's what they were doing there. Yeah. You know, and I mean, um, sometimes, obviously, there, there's the obvious references like the Star Child when Homer goes into space or the bit where Pierce Brosnan becomes Hal. But even little stuff like the docking sequence with the chip and that sort of stuff, I... All of a moment, all of a sudden, I get those jokes in retrospect. Um, welcome back to the Simpsons podcast. <laughs> but um, no, I do. I think it's it's fantastic and it's fascinating. But what about yourself? When when did you first see it? And when you first saw it, had you did you feel like you'd seen most of it before? Um, I'd seen most of it before. Um, I I had fallen asleep for part of it. Um, so I I was setting myself the challenge uh, this time around of 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 not falling asleep. We'll, I, yeah, we, yeah. We'll, we'll leave that until the spoiler zone, but um, we'll, we'll keep the audience on tender hooks there. But um, so, what, what part when you fell asleep the first time you watched it? What what part did you? Uh, what part did you fall asleep? What it was part towards you... the end. I feel like um, they were they were uh, dealing with oh, what can I say? Yeah, it was towards the end. Without what, getting, I like the fact that with, to with be honest, though, like what, any... whatever happens at the end, which everyone already <laughs> knows. Because um, they've seen it in, count, in pop culture countless times. Yeah, also, but, but we've just got rules that we can't break. So. Rigidly adhere to. I yeah. do like the sense, though, that if you were to talk about those bits out of sequence, that they would in no way constitute a spoiler because there's no way to connect that back to the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's not really... Um, like, we talk all the time about spoilers, but I suppose more rather than... 
rather than them being spoilers as such, it might just be the case that somebody feels like if they feel they get the sense that that whatever they've learned about the movie may be a spoiler, whether it is or not. Yeah. So we want to avoid that feeling of like, oh. Yeah. Go in and see it sort of relatively blank. And I think 2001 is a, a, spa- a, a Space Odyssey is a film that's very good for that. Because it's a film you can talk a lot about without actually talking about anything concrete. Like, I, I get the sense, like, it's a movie that's very hard to summarize or to reduce down, actually, because it is quite abstract in places. Yeah. So what did you make of it? Like, what did you make of it the first time you saw it? Did your opinion, has your opinion changed over time? What did, you know, what do you think of it broadly this time? Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a classic. I think it's a very wordy movie. Um, sorry, worthy um, movie. Um, and um, as in well worth watching. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I don't. I don't think it, it, it feels like a stranger on this on this list of, 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 of great movies. What do you think, Gary? I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, we've this is the second Stanley Kubrick movie we've covered. Um, and it in is. fact, it's the second movie from the second director from, that we've covered. So we've covered uh, Denis Villeneuve's, two of Denis Villeneuve's films. And we've covered two of Kubrick's films. I think when we were talking about The Shining, I said that was my favorite Kubrick film. Uh, but I think 2001 Space Odyssey is probably my second favorite Kubrick film. Which is great. I like the fact that I'm setting expectations. So whatever Kubrick film we land on next will logically be my third favorite Kubrick film. But yeah. I do think and that... And each episode uh, of the 250 will, will get progressively worse. Yeah, as we're going. We're sort of yeah. we're, we're hacking down that list. Well, I mean, because I've talked about how I'm not... Like, I appreciate Kubrick as a filmmaker. I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. And anybody who says he isn't is, is obviously deranged in some way or fashion. Just in terms of pure technical ability, in terms of construction, stuff like that. But I've talked about how Kubrick... Deranged. Yeah. Call me uh, contrarian. <laughs> Andrew's about to reveal that he does not care for Stanley Kubrick. He insists upon himself. No, I think... So, that... so, yeah, the, the, I think the, gov- the, the state should step in and, and take care of people who... <laughs> think Stanley Kubrick is not a good filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's, it's like the Ebert threshold, right? Roger Ebert argued that basically... You know, move, opinions about movies are subjective for the most case, right? Yeah. However, um, Ebert drew a line under certain films. And in his case, his argument was, and I, I may be paraphrasing, I'll include the link in the show notes, but his argument was that anybody who enjoyed Transformers 2 Revenge of the Fallen was not sufficiently developed enough to appreciate cinema as an art form. Which may be a bit harsher than I would phrase it, but I think that it's it's a sentiment that, you know, I would perhaps not entirely disagree with. Like, I think that there is, like... Quality of a movie is inherently subjective. Like whether a movie's good or not, or whether you like a movie is is, is subjective. I think yeah. in terms of technique. Yeah, I I think I can appreciate movies to 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 a certain extent for how how good they are or appear to be without uh, without it corresponding to to my personal taste kind of re reaction to it. Yeah. As, as in, I have movies that I that I that I quite like. Are movies that are my favorite movie, but I also can appreciate that they're not the best movie ever made. Robocop just... is a classic, and don't you uh, don't you doubt it? And Robocop <laughs> no, Two is also a classic. It is. It. Speaking of Siskel uh, and Ebert, they loved Robocop. Yeah, they didn't so much care for Robocop Two or Three. Well, that was their mistake. Yeah, but I do. I, Kubrick would be one of those directors for me who doesn't work for me personally as much as say um, Spielberg does. Um, but who I appreciate on technical level. And I think technically speaking, it's very hard to make an argument that he's not an amazing director. 
Yeah, you're 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 like Dawson from Dawson's Creek. He 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 was he was a big fan of 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 of, of Steven Spielberg. Yeah, well, I think I think lots of people are. I think Spielberg sort of speaks to a broader nostalgia. I think my my one of my favorite reactions in dealing with people online is that sometimes you get people who maybe don't have an, an internal filter and who are maybe you know don't interact in the most polite manner. So my personal favorite was after I mentioned that I appreciate Kubrick as a filmmaker and I think he's fantastic, but he's also not. Uh, a director who speaks to me on on a personal level somebody's uh, Kubrick fan's response was that I was simply not emotionally developed enough to accept a movie that did not spoon feed me all the information that I felt I needed well you are famously a child I am mentally and physically a child yeah um emotionally a child as well but uh yeah that that's sort of uh that sort of stuff I, mean, I wouldn't go quite quite that far but I do think that it's very... how, how did that make you feel Darren Deep inside, it, it made me cry a little bit. Um, yeah, the internet is a, it's a fun place populated by people who are always polite and charming and never prone to overreaction in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I mean... Particularly people who feel strongly about media. There, there, there's a lot of mo- emotionally developed people criticizing people who aren't emotionally developed. Yeah, well, they've got that safe distance, I think. You know, I, I appreciate that feedback that I got from that guy. It caused me to really look at my life and sort of, uh, you know, gather and figure out where I was going and where I'd been. Um, but I do and think do nothing. and do absolutely nothing with it, as this conversation has proven. Hello, Internet troll. I still don't like Stanley Kubrick. I like Stanley Kubrick a lot. I still don't love Stanley Kubrick. Is probably the yeah. best way to put it. I, I, I mean, I, I probably prefer um, as well Full Metal Jacket, and 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 I, I quite like the, the, the Shining. I love Doctor Strange though, and I really like Barry uh, Barry Lyndon. Barry. To be and then that's kind of the black sheep of um, of the Kubrick family. Yeah, I don't know. I think people would argue maybe Spartacus or Paths to Glory, his early films. Yeah, because they're the least sort of developed as as a sort of a palette. They were the uh, sort of movies that allowed him to to, to do the stuff yeah. later on. Um, but yeah, no, I, I would sort of I would I would agree with that. I like I don't hate any of his movies. I just think like I think Platoon is a much better Vietnam movie than uh, Full Metal Jacket, for example. Uh, Doctor Strangelove, I like a lot, but I don't, I don't necessarily love it. Barry Lyndon, I appreciate more than I, I enjoy. And Eyes Wide Shut, I think, is is a fantastically atmospheric piece of work, but it just it leaves me cold, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's sort of uh, it's got something for daddy. It's got a lot of things for daddy. Um, but I do think that one of the things about 2001: Space Odyssey is it's like The Shining. It's something that sort of it's a film that does actually touch me, that does speak to me on an emotional level. Like I think there's a lot that I. I respond to in it that I don't necessarily respond to in a lot of Kubrick's other stuff. Although there's also a lot of the stuff that we've talked about that I don't necessarily like about Kubrick's films. Like I think 2001 is perhaps a pessimistic film in some respects about mankind, about the way that Kubrick uh, looks at the world. I think there's a lot of room for interpretation yes. in in 2001, yeah. and I I think there's a lot there's a tendency in people to kind of seek out the definitive. Uh, read on a thing or to argue over who's right and who's wrong i i think the 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 ambiguity of this movie is is is, is part of its strength yeah well i mean this is sort of what we were what we were talking about there about like subjective and objective opinions like i do think the film and art in general is inherently subjective in that it's as much about what you take from a work as what yeah. a work actually is and i think that like 2001 space odyssey like that's why when when we go into this point and i always ask what does it mean to you yeah, uh, even though I think that perhaps some of our guests have sort of found that to be a very strange question, but I do think that there is an element of like an art, art existing as a as a physical object, 
but your reaction to that being something subjective and it meaning something slightly different to everybody who watches it. Like, I think one of the things that really appeals about 2001 Space Odyssey to me is the idea that you and I could look at it and it will be objectively the same film, exact frames, exact sound, and we can both take something very different from it. We can both, like, when we go into the smaller zone and when I ask you what you think it was about, your answer could be entirely different than mine, but will be just as valid. That will be just as reasonable and just as sort of... Uh, just as, as intriguing. And I think that, like, hearing you talk about it and hearing other people talk about it, and, like, reading online, this is one of the things I really dislike about modern discourse on, on film and television, is that the argument is never, like, what do you take from this? It's never, like, how do you look at this and how do you interpret this? And then, basically, does that inform my reading? Is that something different than what I think? And is that, like, is it something that enriches or informs my own reading? It's always, I'm right and you're wrong. It's always, this is terrible. This is unilaterally awful because the internet says it is. Or this is brilliant and anybody who disagrees with this is inherently wrong. Um, like, I think that there's one this, thing... This, um, this hidden meaning of 2001 A Space Odyssey will blow your mind. That's it, exactly. Uh, you won't we'll, believe what happened next. Yeah, we, we're going to have a few of those on the other side of the, 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 the spoiler zone. And you're not going to believe them. Yeah, you, uh, you won't believe what happened next. But I, I do think that like that's one of the things that I really dislike about modern modern film culture and modern film discussion. I actually quite like that. I think that one, one of the things about doing a podcast like this is talking about movies that were released a long time ago, sometimes in a galaxy far, far away, but in a way that existed before modern film discourse, in a way that existed before the internet made everything instantly accessible and made opinions in concrete. Like we've talked a bit about how like films like Blade Runner can be critically reassessed after they're released and sort of like they can be, you know, horrify critics and, and i think 2001 a space odyssey divided critics when it was released as well but over time you can get a consensus sort of changing and evolving because it's not set in stone and i think that now when you have the internet when something's released it's always everything is instant everything is just content farms it's like a barrage a wall of information hits you at once and i think that like to films like 2001 a space odyssey are kind of they, they have the luxury of, of of existing before that and therefore existing beyond that almost outside of that like like the monolith to tie it back to the image but i do think that you're right when you say that the ambiguity of 2001 space odyssey is part of the huge appeal of it it's a feature not a bug and i think that it's impossible it'll be very difficult to argue for a single objective reading of it but i think that that's its strength yeah i mean i i don't know how to what extent you can say it's part of the appeal but but yeah the, that is definitely a feature of it yeah because that will be an appeal to some people but obviously isn't for for others because i think um when certain people see ambiguity well there's different ways of appreciating it it's like oh it's ambiguity so what does it mean to me um and then there's oh it's ambiguity so i i must try to figure it out and then once i've figured it out i, I need to kind of prove that i'm right and have that validated have my I, suppose, validated. I suppose a certain amount of that if if a person is aware of 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 how that's that's an exercise and it's an yeah. enjoyable sort of a yeah as um without 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 being too kind of um partisan or fanatical about um about whether they're right or wrong yeah i, I think there's something definitely something worth doing in that um and i do think that yeah i think there's an argument to be made that yeah, well, we'll probably talk a bit more when we get to the spoiler zone, but you were saying you think it definitely belongs on the list. Yeah, yeah, I, w I would, I would. I, I mean, it's it's so it's so iconic. Um, the movie looks great, sounds fantastic. There's a few things it doesn't really have. Um, I don't think there are 
strong performances, but what what it has is very unintrusive performances, which 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 I think fits very well with 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 the kind of movie it is. Well, I mean, like without getting too spoilery, you could argue that it's a movie without a where the central character is arguably mankind. Yeah, like yeah. Where, where there's no. It, it's structured into acts and each of those acts are sort of like tangential and sort of there's no clear the through line is the evolution of mankind almost you know, yeah. rather than a single character having an arc no and i think that that sort of fits with the idea of maybe it not having like a strong central performance but i think like you look at the cast and and the cast is not full of people you recognize from other films no and they don't really do anything i guess in this movie where you would think oh i can't wait to see that person in something else yeah like and in fact, like when you look at to, to give an example, when you go to the IMDb and you look up the pictures of the top two listed actors in the film, their pictures are the characters from this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, now to be fair, one of them um, is is probably best known Gary Lockwood. It's probably best known for being a guest star on the very first episode of the original Star Trek. Oh. Um, the where no man has gone before. He was Kirk's friend who well, was transformed into a god. Maybe best best known by certain people. Yes, one of whom may be on this podcast. Um, but no, I, I think I think that's a very valid point. I don't think it's a problem though. Like I, I actually quite like the the epic scope of it, and the sense that like it's it's ultimately just, it's like a panoramic view. Oh yeah. As no, I, to I, 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 a tight story. Yeah, I, a narrative. I, I, I think I think I think that worked. But you would I, I suppose you would say that to somebody before before they go out, uh, to watch. Don't don't expect this. Yeah. What 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 this movie is is, well, it's 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 not it's not really a very traditional movie. Nor nor like sometimes we watch movies from 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 back then and they're groundbreaking for the time. Yeah. But I think watching two thousand one: A Space Odyssey now it's still groundbreaking. um groundbreaking. And you 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 watch it and while while there are elements of it which 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 have been taken and used in other movies. There, 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 there aren't really movies like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually it would be very difficult to see a movie like that made today, actually. Yeah. Like, I think that you would never get a movie on that scale, on that budget, with that level of production made you, today and released. Yeah, the amount of trust placed in, in um, Kubrick. Kubrick was astonishing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and you'd argue that he paid off in the fact that it, it's regarded as a classic. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, at the time, like, the fact that it was divisive and when it opened... Critics were sort of split along along the lines, much like they were with, and it's it's something that happens with lots of movies that we talk about. We talk about Psycho, where you had like the young critics were like, "This is exciting," and the old critics were like, "This is just violence and sex for the sake of it." I think that with 2001: Space Odyssey, you had like critics who were like, "This is amazing and groundbreaking and transcendent," and sort of like a very almost European sort of or or, or even the Soviet style of filmmaking as opposed to an American style. And you had critics who were just like, "This is empty nonsense. This is just vacuous imagery. It looks pretty, but it doesn't add up to anything." Right, um, and I think that you would still have that today if it were released. Mm. Like that if you released it today, if it didn't exist already, if it didn't have this reputation that it has through the the people who loved it, like going back to it and returning to it and discussing it and sort of dissecting it and writing books on it, writing journal articles on it, and it sort of seeping into popular culture through stuff like The Simpsons, I think that if you release something like this today, blind to the world, you would get pretty much the same reaction to it. Yeah, I do, yeah, it it certainly wouldn't be as big. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there, there have been there have been movies in 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 recent years that have had some of the 
like a, a lot of people will, will, will kind of draw um, comparisons between this and Interstellar, but Interstellar was was filled full of these um, uh, big performances by these well-known actors and was was actually very, very structured kind of um, uh, plot. It um, was. It, 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 it just had um, elements of which people were, were, were kind of confused or... Um, well, even even then, like I would argue, and like I I love obviously it. the science fiction. Yeah. Well, I, I want to be like clear on this because I, I actually love Interstellar. Me too. Um, but I want to be like so when when I say what I'm about to say, it's coming from a place of love. I think that Interstellar like is very much like a, a simplified and very straightforward. It takes some of the ideas of 2001: Space Odyssey, but it removes a lot of the ambiguity, and that's grand because I yeah. think I think one of the things about like Nolan is traditionally described as a, a director who's considered Kubrickian. Yeah. Like he's many commentators and many sort of film journalists would argue that that Kubrick has a very sorry that Kubrick, that Nolan has as an approach that is reminiscent of Kubrick. His sort of his cynicism about mankind, the way that he positions the camera, the way that he structures his mysteries, the way that he presents an almost nihilistic worldview in some respects. I never bought that, and I never I'm actually quite proud of this. I never bought it before Interstellar came out because Interstellar is basically. I would argue Nolan rejecting the comparisons to Kubrick. Yeah, I, d- I, d- I don't. I don't see Nolan as being um, pessimistic at all. No, and particularly with Interstellar, because Interstellar is basically what if to that what if two thousand and one was a lot more straightforward, a lot less ambiguous, yeah. and took place in a universe where love and hope and optimism were forces at work that had like a tangible effect. There's a there's that cheesy speech which I kind of like where Anne Hathaway talks about how love is a force that transcends time like gravity, um, and that's never a speech that you would imagine in a Kubrick film. No, um, but I, I I don't think this is a particularly I know it's, um, as I said this this is a movie that's that's very much um, uh, prone to to uh, to to many different forms of interpretation, but for me I I didn't feel like this this was a a particularly pessimistic or nihilistic movie no I, I i wouldn't agree with that entirely but i do think there are certainly elements of it like i think it's one of the things like about the shining is i think that kubrick is a cynical filmmaker in many respects and, and some nihilistic tendencies i think he doesn't think much of people and one of the reasons that, that i like the shining more than most is because it's a horror movie and so that sensibility feels at home yeah but i do think there are elements of that here but we'll probably talk about that in a bit in the spoiler zone would you recommend that people watch this film andrew Yes, I would. Um, um, and I, I, I feel, I, feel this is a movie that I can admire and I can appreciate. It didn't um, have a great impact on me, but I could still, as I say, admire a, a, a lot about it and appreciate um, aspects of it certainly. And also, I've, I've almost, I, I've, I've very little bad to say about this movie. I think I think um, it's probably a, a a product of 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 being um, uh, educated by television. But I I've, I found it I've I, I did find it quite slow. It I I I, I do need to be um, uh, spoon fed, I suppose. Harsh. Or 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 a little drop of sugar. Well, no, I mean, like I, I was there on that, uh, I was on that uh, stalker podcast as well, Andrew. We're, we're yeah, both, we're yeah. both in this. I, I do think Tarkovsky is a very slow director. There's a great that great speech he gave about how, like, when you become bored, hmm. you become so intensely bored that it becomes a more compelling form of being interested. Th- and I'm not convinced by that. I think I, I said at the time, yeah. What does he think happens when people <laughs> get bored? Yeah. But um, I think that 2001: Space Odyssey sort of 
walks that line very, very, very well. Like I think I can see how some of the stuff would bore people to death, but I, I also see how like it's. I don't think there's a single shot in this that was boring for me. No, there was a lot of stuff that was extended and and drawn yeah. out and very I, procedural. I, and, yeah, but I don't think any of it was was boring for me. I don't think when I was watching it, I was like, "Oh my god, will they get past this sequence already and just get to the next plot beat?" Yeah, I, I think I always appreciated what was being shown on screen. I think yeah, I I think I I I would agree with you in 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 that, and I think that that would be one difference between it and um, Stalker. In that st- st- parts of Stalker were uh, very visually compelling. But almost all of two thousand and one, a space odyssey was was very visually compelling. None, none of none of us, while while slow, was boring. But because of the the way it kind of lingered on 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 these beautiful uh, uh, visuals, it does slowly dull you. <laughs> it slowly numbs you. Yeah. We may be hinting at the sort of resolution to that mystery we teased earlier in the podcast about whether Andrew managed to stay awake the entirety are, of this. Or we may film. be misdirecting you. But well, you're, you're, you'll, you'll, you'll find out about that. In a moment, as yeah. we enter the spoiler zone. zone so yeah i fell asleep at the end of this <laughs> just to get it out there and i think i think you fell asleep at pretty much exactly the same point exactly you... the same point but Where... you know what was heartening actually is i missed very little because as we said this this movie moves quite slowly and is very forgiving to 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 people who who might not have I feel um, like that's the ringing endorsement we need to put on the DVD yeah. box. It's a movie you can fall asleep to and yeah. wake up to without <laughs> feeling like you've missed anything. You will be just as confused yeah. as everybody else. You know, I I feel like I I I um well while I'm certainly less qualified to uh, to talk about this movie than somebody who had stayed awake for the entirety <laughs> of the film, yeah, several times. Having said that, like it's not as if I got paid for doing this. So, um, <laughs> I like how defensive I, you I, are. I, like, I don't. So I when don't Twitter find... comes at you, Andrew, <laughs> yeah. and it will come at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I wasn't qualified in the first case, so um, I don't <laughs> see how this makes me any less qualified. All right. Well, we'll we'll press that point uh, a little later on, Andrew. What was two, what were the bits of two thousand and one A Space Odyssey that you were awake for? What were they about for you? Well, I mean, I I don't think I'm breaking any ground here saying that the, the, this is a movie about um, humanity, uh, humanity's evolution, its um, its introduction to the idea of technology, its um, its disassociation uh, from technology, and and maybe where. Um, we go as a species once technology uh, begins to surpass us. I think the 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 because um, the movie starts with um, these Homo sapiens, I guess, 
discovering how to use uh, tools. Yeah. Um, and they, they, I guess they use them to beat up some Neanderthals, I'm going to guess, or, yeah. or or something along those lines. I, now, I, I now think... Andrew, this is the bit where I pause and I say, remember how I mentioned that Kubrick was in some ways cynical about mankind? Right. Now, according to Kubrick, the moment at which mankind came into being, the dawn of man, as the title assures us. Yeah. Right? That was the moment when mankind figured out that they could kill other organisms by hitting them with heavy objects. Yeah. You don't think that's at all cynical? Um, no, I, 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 I think um, there was something kind of compelling about that, rather than the, and, and something kind of violent and visceral about it. Rather than having a, 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 a very low-key moment where, where these um, apes discover how to communicate with each other, by and using ex- sounds, um, and, and or create art, or, or create, draw something, yeah, on, or blow into, was, yeah, blow into a stick to make music. I don't think that would have worked because you could have chosen any number of things. I, I think, I think creating fire might have worked, where yeah. where there could be this blaze, yeah. just uh, created by 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 these animals and and a, a real kind of fervor. Um, uh, about that and them going wild well, with it, but 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 the the, well, that's what Dr. the idea of using using tools, um, I think there 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 had to be something kind of like um, aggressive and yeah yeah like visually compelling perhaps because you do get that great montage as yeah. they as they whack the bone and as all the animals fall and all this sort of stuff like the, the as the triumphant it, music sounds. I mean, it could have been them beating the Neanderthals at a game of basketball. That would have also been pretty good, but the... that's the plot of Grown Ups, Andrew. That's the plot of Grown Ups. Yeah, where Homo sapiens beat Homo uh, Neanderthals at a game of basketball and thus assert their <laughs> they dominance. Beat some Homo Neanderthals. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you not remember where they go to? They go back to the local town. Okay. And they play the game of basketball with the local residents, and the whole point of the movie is that Adam Sandler is better than the town where he grew up in because he's able to beat them at basketball, but then he ah. chooses not to. He allows them a pity win because beating Adam Sandler at basketball will be the most important thing that they accomplish in their lives. I see. Grown Ups is an awful movie. Yeah, we're, this this isn't... Um, worst idea ever. Worst idea of all time. Oh, sorry. Apologies. But, um, yeah, no, so... I understand why Kubrick might not have chosen to go that direction with the film. But I do think that there is something very cynical in the idea that, like, human progress is measured in our ability or our willingness to kill each other and to massacre each other and to to engage in violence like i mean there's the great shot the wonderful cut of when the ape throws the tool into the air it's a fantastic cut like it's one of yeah. the most memorable cuts in the movie where the ape where the the bone goes spinning through the air and it cuts to this object just floating in space now in the original script and in the original cut of the film kubrick originally planned to reveal that those were actually nuclear missile silos pointing at earth um, he took that dialogue out because he just made uh, Doctor Strangelove and he didn't want to invite too many comparisons between Doctor Strangelove and 2001 Space Odyssey. But originally... Um, not, yeah, he, he, he wasn't allowing his, his, um, his obsessions to, 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 to bleed into to different movies. Well, which, so, which, so explicit. Well, explicitly. I think yeah. implicitly. I think they're still sh- it's still shaped like a gun and it's still pointing down at Earth. I think you can still sort of like... You can read that. Paul Paul Verhoeven um, was um, obs- ob- obsessed with um, uh, uni- unisex um, changing rooms and, and managed to, to 
to work that into just about every movie that he did from Robocop yeah, to yeah, Starship Troopers. He, he felt that in Robocop it didn't linger on it long enough. You know, well, that was the original cut of Black Book, wasn't it? Where had you know had that Nazi reveal in a unisex changing room. Really? No. <laughs> um, but I do think that, like, I think that it's interesting because the, apparently the original ending of the film would have had all those nuclear platforms in orbit of the planet discharging and destroying Earth in a nuclear holocaust. Oh. Yeah. Um, and he chose not to do it because he was worried about it would be seen as repeating himself. But I, I do so when I was reading that, I was like. I can very much imagine that's how Kubrick wanted this film to go. Is there any way for me to end this movie with the destruction of mankind using the tools that they brought to bear? So, and and there's that sort of connection back to the bone that he that's used at the start, like this idea uh, that yeah. mankind is just makes weapons to hurt each other. And I I I I think it's a it's a very different conclusion. Well, at least so yeah, one, what we end one up with, possible yeah. conclusion that we can come to is that mankind. Um, is capable of um, transcending um, what we are. What we are um, in ways that wouldn't make any sense to us watching the movie because we haven't yet transcended. Yeah. The, 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 the point the point that's made is is um, there's something kind of incomprehensible um, at first, and then there's somehow man becoming some kind of um, purely uh, spiritual um, yeah a, re- a rebirth uh, yeah but we, yeah. I mean we'll probably talk about that when we get to the end of the film because the end of the film is, is where the film gets most abstract I think like initially like you can break it down you know very most... v- different movie at at the beginning it's yeah. uh, like um, uh, no I'm not going to say Robocop <laughs> like Full Metal Jacket it's... okay here we go I want to hear this actually I'm very curious about this well just in the sense that the Full Metal Jacket at its beginning is 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 is, is a very uh, different movie it's a, oh, it's okay, a, then it's a boot change. camp kind of yeah well at the halfway point then they actually go to, to Vietnam and yeah actually one of the things I quite liked about it was the fact that you did have you had like um, you know the private played by by Vincent D'Onofrio yeah it's like he seems to be the lead character for the first half of the film it has a beginning a middle and end and then starts again yeah which is is quite interesting I think that yeah 2001 Space Odyssey does something similar because you have this big sequence on on the prairie and actually I really like the sequence of the prairie even if the costumes of the apes aren't brilliant yeah, yeah, they're 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 not the Mae West, no, no, no. But I think that there's something very beautiful and very like very traditional about the way it's shot because it, you can tell it was shot on a soundstage with a matte background and stuff like that. Right, and you can tell that like just about the only animals they brought on were these sort of sniffling pigs and this leopard. Right, and like this was what the budget would stretch to, and we shot it on a soundstage as this sort of very old school sort of movies. It, even like, in some respects, it, lo- it would have looked out of date when compared to something like uh, Planet of the Apes, which came out around the same time. But I do think that what's fascinating is it then transitions from that into this wonderful sort of space opera, like really sort of pushing what you can do in a technical sense. Yeah. As soon as it leaves the, the, the orbit. Because like, let's talk about when it leaves the, the Dawn of Man. And this is interesting because the, one of the points that's made by Kubrick scholars is that the film is generally seen as taking place over, it's, it's basically seen as sort of a three-act structure. And there's act cards that appear at, at various points. Like the, the first one is obviously the Dawn of Man. And then at the end you have Beyond the Infinite. They, 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 that's the point where they spray on this Lynx Africa. And then all the girls run off with them instead of with the Neanderthals. Yeah. That's what you could have chosen to do. 
That's the moment that civilization yeah, came the into moment, being. The moment, the moment that the Homo sapiens discovered Lynx body spray. By the way, you know that some Lynx executive is listening to this podcast <laughs> right now. I think and they've already done that. But they could totally do it again. Um, but it's okay because the sex is in this kish. Yeah. Uh, it, it's ironic. Unless you're reading it literally, in which case it's not. But I do think that there's this transition then to the bits in space. And the bits in space are amazing. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, astonishing. The... the, the um, Stuff I didn't, the stuff that I thought was overdone, but was probably very um, compelling to a person at the time, was all the stuff about how things are different in space. I love that about the film. I didn't think that was overdone at all. Actually. No, I, this is probably my big sort of sci-fi nerd side. Didn't nerd have side like, talking. Um, there, there's Hilton, there's, yeah. and then there's Space Hilton. Yeah, but I do like that. Well, you know that he he wrote off to to dozens, if not hundreds, of companies asking yeah. for their plans for the future, and those that got back to him got to be put in the film. So like you got like Pan Am in space, which is hilarious given that you know Pan Am doesn't exist anymore. Also, two thousand one was kind of a disappointment when compared to two thousand one, right? But I do think that there's there's something sort of compelling in this this vision of the future that's built around like the camera spends so much time luxuriating and how life will be different in this fictional 2001 like there's like you ever wonder how people get food in the in the future how people will eat food on space flights or how waiters and hostesses will sort of walk around well don't worry we'll get a nice close-up of the shoes working so you can see that they're sticky oh yeah how we're going to maintain gravity well we'll show you that it's a centrifuge um how ships are going to line up to dock like, how people are going to have juice in zero-G. Like, there's... And one of the things I actually really like about the film is there's so much emphasis on signage. Yeah. And it, it's funny, because in, in the second act, as opposed to the first or the third, there's a lot of emphasis placed on explaining absolutely everything. <laughs> and then, and like, and the bookends of the movie are... Are completely out there and open to interpretation. Yeah. But there's lots, there's lots of great it's shots like, in the middle of the film of people reading. Yeah, we don't properly do. Do we actually know how the space toilet works? No, no, we don't. We just see instructions for use. Now I'm fairly sure you can zoom in and sort of read them. I don't know how high definition it is, but there is a really great shot of of. We should, we should do a segment where <laughs> where we just read space signs. Specifically, like how to poop uh, in space. Well, you know that story about the three seashells, right? Oh yes, yeah. Apparently, from... Sylvester Stallone from uh, Demolition Man. Sylvester Stallone explained um, exactly how they work. Um, and it's it's uh, pretty much exactly how you would expect, but don't worry, we'll we'll include those in the show notes. Uh, we're not going to talk about them on air, Andy. No, you, you let's. No, let's not. But um, you could there's you a... let the listener note that I wanted to talk about the three seashells, how they if, were used. Yeah, I like. We're... Do you feel like I'm stifling you? Well, I mean, I suppose that that could be for the listener to um to 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 appreciate. I, I I'm I'm lucky enough not to have to not to have to kind of form my own opinions. The amount of listener engagement we have means 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 that I know exactly where I should stand so, at any given moment. Yeah. So let, let me let me know let me know whether 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 we should be talking about poop more or even less, I guess, <laughs> or whether we're talking about it just the right amount. Yeah. But um, I do like that there's a shot of Floyd, who is presumably a businessman who travels in space frequently. But there's this shot of Floyd looking at the zero-G toilet, leaning in close, going, ah, that's how that works. You see, this is my contention about 2001 A Space Odyssey, is that almost everything that Floyd is seeing has just come about in the last month. (laughs) Like, oh... 
I used uh, to have to hold it in on flights. Yeah, they, like the last time he was on the space station, it was like Hilton coming soon. Yeah, um, <laughs> just the sheer novelty of it all. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it's like um, there's there's oh, a the video call. There, yeah, the video call. He's like, oh, there's a video on this, um, or, or 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 there's a there's an ad like which says, are you tired of pooping in bags when you're in space? Well, look, we've come up with the latest in uh, space pooping technology. Yeah, you can you can talk to your loved ones while on the toilet with this video phone. <laughs> but I I do I like I like the idea that like two thousand one invests so heavily in this minutia because I mean one of the things is that we like when you come to science fiction right science fiction is, is I think in some ways very hard to do on screen as opposed to on on the page or or on on television even because. It's very hard to build a world and tell a story in the same, like, finite, say, two-hour block. I don't know. I, I thought a lot of the world building got in the way. Really? Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, like, like I, th- I think you can do that in an unintrusive way. Well, I mean, I think that when you're doing it in books, you have passages of exposition to do that. And I think that when you're doing it on a TV show, like, say, Star Trek, you have the advantage of, like, building it up over years. So it's not like you have a big info dump. Like, there's... You, Kirk doesn't spend 30 minutes in the first episode of Star Trek reading signs or the camera doesn't spend time. Yeah, but in the... they totally do in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but I, I like that it it, do, that, like, it does that as a way of like trying to... Like you can tell Kubrick famously argued that he wanted to make the hypothetical good science fiction movie. Like he wanted to make a, a science fiction movie that was true to literary science fiction as opposed to say like the B movies like The Giant Shrinking Man or The Giant Shrinking Man or Attack of the 50 Foot Woman or that sort of stuff or you know it came from outer space all that sort of stuff he wanted to do like a literary science fiction on the big screen Shrinking Man meets uh, 50 Foot Woman um, are, are we thinking of that movie in in, in what, what's uh, uh, Monsters vs. Aliens Pablo Canella the uh, uh, Pedro Almodovar movie I'm not, but... Uh... Okay, never mind. All right, then. But I do think that, like, I think that there is something... I like that approach about it, and I like that it's something that you'd never get away with now because you'd want to be constantly cutting to the action, and you want to be constantly cutting to stuff. But I do like that the, the, the film is confident enough to linger. That allows these beats to sort of to play out. You know, that it's it's like, hey, this is what life will be like in 2001. It's like a travelogue. I, I love the set design of it. Yeah, and 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 I was wondering, kind of like, how are they doing this? Yeah, well, I mean, even the they, mo- even the model work is impressive. Yeah, because but like when you watch people walking um, full three hundred and sixty degrees yeah, around and, a centrifuge, and, and you're wondering, kind of like um, he's jogging. Yeah, yeah, you're presumably like you're trying to figure this out, and there's this. It looks as though the structure is stable but the person is moving around yeah. it but presumably they're having to move the structure the structure around the person with yeah. them kind of like walking forward like, like it's a treadmill yeah well, i mean we were talking earlier about like comparisons between nolan and kubrick like, i think technically nolan borrowed quite a lot from kubrick so like for example the the rotating rooms in inception for example yeah they're it, done in a similar thing practical like, special effect you yeah you build a structure and you rotate it but you keep the camera fixed on it and even stuff like the one of the things I really like about the space shots in 2001: Space Odyssey, and it's something that you don't necessarily see very often in in science fiction on screen, is the idea of fixing the camera, treating the camera not as an objective observer, right? So you know, in Star Trek, when spaceships line up, 
or when spaceships meet up, they're always facing one another on a perfectly level plane, as if they're ships sailing on an ocean. Yeah. Like, one of the things I really like about the camera work in 2001 Space Odyssey is the idea that Kubrick fixes the camera to the objects themselves as opposed to placing them as objective observers. So, during that great sequence where Floyd's ship is docking at the space station, like, you have the shot from inside the hangar as the centrifuge is rotating. So it's yeah. like you're static and then the, the ship appears to be rotating. And then you have the shot from the ship's point of view of the centrifuge rotating. And you have the two sort of syncing up in a way that draws attention to the idea that space is like three-dimensional and, and has no sense of gravity. Yeah. Which is something that I think there's Nolan no borrowed. There's no up and down, there's no north and south. Yeah. There's there's basically nothing is, is there's just relative direction. And like yeah. when you're interacting, you have to figure that out. And I like that it gives, it creates this sense of space as as a space, ironically enough. But as as something that isn't doesn't conform to our expectations of gravity, as something that like Nolan used very well in like Interstellar, like Interstellar has a number of those great shots as well, where he fixes the camera to objects and, and in Inception and in Inception, and so the object moves around the camera, which creates this sort of uncanny effect almost, which which I I really really liked that aspect of it. And I think that even like Gravity, for example, to pick yeah. another recent example, but it, it does it presents this idea of like there's a lot of when you watch the Desmond with Space Odyssey of going wow this thing is cool yeah and there's no reason to show it other than it's cool like for example yeah. in, in the hangar bay on the centrifuge there's like this wonderful shot of teams working on the top and on the bottom and on the left and on the right and because of the centrifuge is gravity like they're they're all standing up they're all standing upright but they're they're standing in opposite directions one another if that makes sense they're sort of yeah there. yeah and and, and they're they're there's such an opportunity for a science fiction movie to, um, or I guess for a, 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 a fantasy movie as well, to create these fantastic um, uh, worlds that, that, are, that are really astonishing to look at. And to be, like, like the sky is the limit. You don't have to just um, re reproduce something as it would exist in the real world. You, you can... You can let your imagination run wild with it, and um, I mean there are even space sandwiches. Yeah, well, <laughs> I <laughs> although although as yeah, I think as you pointed out as we were watching it, not space coffee. No, no, no. There, 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 there was a moment when they're about to pour space coffee, and you're thinking, how is this going to work? And then they cut to the next scene. Yeah, and you can tell the Kubrick's like, I haven't quite worked that out yet. <laughs> but when we've got CGI, you know, I might come back and edit that back in. Like, I actually, I, I do really like that. I can understand why it would irritate people a lot. I can understand why, when you're watching it, you might find it boring or disinteresting. But I, I do... Mean, I, find, I find it fun. It just seemed kind of um, a, uh, uh, um, a bit gratuitous. That's all. Because there was so much kind of um, fantastic um, use of the, as you said, the, the um, not conforming to our expectations that we have of... of, of um, yeah, like, how life is and how, yeah, yeah. How, how space travel will be or whatever. Yeah, and even even stuff that I enjoyed, like like the um, we're used to aircraft um, on Earth being these aerodynamic designs where 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 they have to be a certain shape um, in because, order to move through the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah or or where um, um, there has to be a certain distribution of weight because otherwise. Um, uh, g gravity would 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 cause one part to break or uh, yeah. yeah, but in in space you don't have these limitations. So you, you you have you have these crafts that are shaped in 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 a certain way purely for 
like there 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 is a part at the at the back where there is an engine and everything else is is shaped in a certain way to to facilitate the activities taking place within it yeah you don't have to shape shape it a certain way um to to be aerodynamic or 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 or, or, or for for um well, I mean, in terms of weight well, i mean that, that's there's no weight either that's actually quite quite nice in terms of like because the the spacecraft that that the pan am flight that floyd takes to the station is very clearly designed for atmospheric flight presumably it took off yeah. from the surface of the planet but the flight that he takes to the moon yeah it's it's just this big sphere basically and it's it's a sphere that's designed so that you can have different centers of gravity like you've got that great shot of the the stewardess like walking up the wall before letting herself into the into the pilots yeah know, yeah uh, which is is really really great because if if, if if you didn't have the uh limitations of of gravity then that's how you'd maximize space and exactly there'd stuff. be a whole lot of stuff on the roof yeah uh which is, is is really really cool and i i really really like that and i mean i can so i guess this is sort of what you're getting at when you talk about like the movie not necessarily having like great characters or, or great individuals because i mean like we spend the first half of the movie with with these apes and and none of them obviously well, have names they, they, they don't have dialogue and then we spend it's quite quite sh- quite okay. a short time well i was gonna say and then and then we spend time with floyd you know floyd yeah and and he doesn't really necessarily have a lot of character beyond the fact that he's a dude who lives in the future well, um not floyd merriweather <laughs> hayward floyd um, I wasn't thinking Floyd Mayweather. I, w- I was I was thinking the Floyd who would um, who would go and have like a glass of wine um, while 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 eating. Who is the celebrity chef? It was just known as Floyd. Keith Floyd. Keith Floyd. And what was his show called? Floyd on France. Floyd yeah. India. Fish on Floyd. Floyd on Italy. Floyd on Britain. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was it was um, it was Floyd in this movie. Um, uh, reviewing um, food, food in space. Uh, yeah. Floyd, Deep Floyd, space juice packs. Floyd, Floyd on space. Yeah, Floyd on space. Deep space juice packs. It's Keith Floyd, of course. Yeah, uh, is the one that we were talking about the the British celebrity cook um, and TV personality. But I can see what you're saying about like the film not necessarily having a lot of like character and stuff because I think it's it's almost an hour before like when you think of like obviously a lot of the visuals and iconography of 2001 space has been sort of riffed on and sort of soaked into popular culture but in terms of like story in right. terms of like in terms of like narrative right you're a good hour maybe hour and 20 minutes into the movie before you hit what many people will consider to be the core of yeah. 2001 space Odyssey, which is the bit with hal yeah because hal is really the only character i think that people remember from yeah. 2001 space Odyssey. the only character that like you can say the name hal and people will know uh, who it's from whereas if you say like hayward floyd people are like who the hell are you talking about yeah or... hal hal is definitely the computer from uh, uh 2001 a space odyssey or knight rider or something like that yeah he's definitely the um the person Simpsons, i think yeah but he, he is like i mean because that's the bit that people think about when they think about like if you were to ask somebody what 2001 a space odyssey about in terms of plot they go you know well they probably think of the bit where the astronaut astronauts where the <laughs> astronauts uh, begin journeying out towards jupiter and then the computer goes haywire and they have to interact and they have to basically try and take back the ship yeah um which is interesting because it's it's such a it's not a small segment of the film but it's just one act of the movie almost against sort of the rest of it i think i don't know i find it sort of striking that it sort of it dominates the movie in in sort of such a such a regard it's such a small story one of the um 
one of the things about 2001 Space Odyssey was it was originally, it went through various iterations as it was developed. It was a work of collaboration between Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. And one of Clarke's original pitches was that it would be... It's the, the Sentinel. Sentinel. Well, actually, this is interesting because um, he really, really, really didn't like that comparison. Um, he really didn't like the comparison between 2001 Space Odyssey and the Sentinel because a lot of people argued, and it became very sort of common at the time, to suggest that 2001 was basically an adaptation of his short story, The Sentinel. In... Oh, okay, so th- th- this is this is like um, the um, Old Man Logan, um, Lo- Lo- Logan. Logan comparisons. That, yeah, it, that they're a, not it's, necessarily... It's an easy one, but it's not necessarily accurate, or at least according to Clark. Because here he is talking to... to he talked. To, he wrote the short story in 1948. He talked to Heavy Metal about it. I am continually annoyed by careless references to the Sentinel as, quote, the story on which 2001 is based, unquote. It, it bears about as much relation to the movie as an acorn to the resultant full-grown oak. Considerably less, in fact, because ideas from several other stories were also incorporated. Even the elements that Stanley Kubrick and I did actually use were considerably modified. Thus, the, quote, glittering, roughly pyramidal structure set in the rock like a gigantic many-faceted jewel became, after several modifications, the famous black monolith. And the locale was moved from the Maricrisium to the most spectacular of all lunar craters, Tycho, easily visible from the naked eye from Earth at full noon. Um, And there's also the fact that even the opening scene was inspired by his short story encounter at dawn. Like, it's not... I, th- I think, you know, you, you can see certain elements of his, his work there in the sense that, like, when a writer writes so much material, they reuse elements and they recycle elements. You could argue that 2001 is, is like, a, a hybrid of various elements that both Kubrick brought himself yeah. to the process and that, that Clark had used before, but he sort of reconfigured for it almost. Okay. You know? But um, one of the original ideas for the film was going to be how the solar system was won. And it was going to be basically a series of vignettes that would unfold across mankind's exploration of the solar system. So you'd it'd be almost like um, you know the Martian Chronicles by by Ray Bradbury. By Ray. Are these the um, the uh, green Earth, blue Earth? Uh, sorry, um, red Mars, uh, uh, blue Mars, green Mars. No, no I don't sorry. think so. I think no, no, no. The, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's that's something completely different. No, it was more Ray like, Bradbury. Yeah, Ray Bradbury. No, no. Okay, but it was like basically it's a series of short stories that that explore the Earth colonization of Mars, and I think by by themes and ideas and by sort of elements that crop up, but they're basically like a series of short stories. I think that the original structure um, was going to be five stories focused on mankind's colonization of the solar system that would have climaxed with the discovery of of alien life, rather than say I think two thousand one introduces the concept quite early with the monolith and then sort of follows it. Well, I I suppose it's debatable whether 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 that's um, alien life or not. Yeah, but like like with most things, I I, I it seems. Um, well, we talk about the monolith for a moment. Yeah, sure. I mean, what what do you think the monolith is? Um, I like that. That's the first question. No, no softball here. I think the um, well within the world of the movie, it's. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an artifact of some kind. It it it, it may have been uh, placed there. It may it may simply appear 
at at certain times and it then may be alive di- di- it may not this, be alive yeah. disappear um when it's when its use has 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 been taken as in um when it's seen what it needs to see for example yeah yeah when when um and there 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 been people kind of debating or arguing over whether whether it causes these advances or whether it's just kind of there for these advances like a tourist yeah. yeah 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 to observe or yeah um and i do think like it's it's interesting because apparently kubrick while he was developing the film he asked lloyds of london to insure him or to insure the film in case alien life would have been discovered like during the production cycle ah you know? Uh, apparently Lloyds of London told him no but it was like it was it, this the only reason to do that is it has a marketing gimmick <laughs> so Lloyds of London were like that is quite frivolous sir. <laughs> yeah. but um, ah, I, I, part of me sort of can can understand where Kubrick was coming from given how much he invests in the film because this was around the time that we were talking about like we were sending probes into the solar system we were landing men on the moon for the first time. Like there was still yeah. a sense that the, there was a sense of majesty about space in the late sixties, and a sense that we could at any point discover something wonderful and magical out there. Yeah, and I think that like two thousand one space Odyssey sort of speaks to that. But I, I can understand why. And it's kind of fascinating to think that at the time Kubrick, I don't know. You you said it's maybe a marketing gimmick. I I wonder if Kubrick actually believed that there was some faint possibility that between him coming up with this idea. And the idea actually making it to screen that mankind could have discovered alien life and it all could have been thrown into doubt and the movie could have been completely wasted um, in Kubrick's eyes. Like, I mean, it's strange to think that there was a time when that was considered a realistic possibility for people working on a film. Yeah, I, I think um, the government have done a good job of, uh, the, the, um, of, 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 of covering up the existence of, of, well, I mean, of extraterrestrial creatures well, let, let's face living it. amongst us. Well, controlling our minds that's why we wear the tinfoil hats Andrew yeah I mean well like the, when the, Kubrick faked the, the moon people landing. in charge of the government are the extraterrestrial lizard people really yeah yeah I thought that was the Illuminati um well in 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 league with the lizard people what about the reverse vampires <laughs> but I do think that like I mean the government obviously covered up alien life as a thank you to Kubrick for faking the moon landing. It's like they faked the moon landing, it's like yeah. anything we can do for you aside from not killing you as long as you promise not to reveal it, except by hints you bury in the shining. He's like, yeah. Well actually I'm making this movie and I'd really appreciate it if you didn't discover alien life before I released it. The government was yeah. like, You know what, Stanley, we like you so much, we're gonna make sure that no alien life is exposed ever. Yeah. And so two thousand one will endure as a classic. Yeah. So the government gets a bad rap with this conspiracy stuff. Yeah. But I, I think deep down they're really just doing a solid. Yeah, he, he, and he was also like, I got this dirty movie as well. I want to make it especially for myself and not release it until after I'm done. Um, Andrew? I haven't seen it. <laughs> how, how do you think the US government enabled the making of Eyes Wide Shut? <laughs> I mean, how 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 they did so isn't as important as why. Well, there is there is a conspiracy. Like you, the question you, is, who stood to benefit? <laughs> who benefits? Well, I mean, the, you, we we joke about this, but there is a conspiracy. There is oh, there's a conspiracy theory about everything. But isn't there an argument that Kubrick was killed by people who were worried that they'd be exposed by eyes wide shut? Oh, okay. Yeah, there, there's an argument that there's a crazy paranoid. Lizard people love. 
crazy sex party. Yeah, and and Kubrick was just gonna blow the lid wide off, wide open. Okay. Um, you think that's crazy? Yeah, I mean, crazy. But I, I do think there's something sort of fascinating in that. But that, like, 2001: Space Odyssey was a product of a world that believed that aliens could have been found in a couple of years. Like, it's kind of strange to wrap your head around that now. I think. No? Yeah, imagine, imagine like we uh, imagine all of the things that we would stop talking about for 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 a few days at least. Yeah. Do you think do you think they would continue playing um ske- schedule sporting fixtures if if we if we discovered their their if if aliens visited uh planet Earth would other things be suspended temporarily? Yeah. Like would the Oscars be moved yeah. a couple of weeks? Would, yeah, would people just go into work the next day? Yeah. I mean that actually that is something I really quite liked about um, about Arrival actually well, yeah that it did it did capture that sense of well Amy Adams is going to go into work but that's just because she has no life yeah uh, and not because anyway never mind that's a spoiler we won't go into that I think that I think people have an incredible ability to ignore or downplay tremendous and seismic cultural and historical events. Right. Like, I think that people don't always realize the importance of events as they're living through them. There's a sense of put your head down and get on with it. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, my my parents, for example, <laughs> like, my parents remember where they were when they heard JFK was shot. But they, they didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> Did they have anything to do with it? This is the question. I like how quickly this turned into a conspiracy podcast. <laughs> um, but I do think, like, I wonder if aliens showed up. I I, I I think everyone of our generation knows where they were when nine um, eleven happened. Yeah, or when they heard about nine eleven. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember when I first heard about it, I thought it was some sort of obscene, like practical joke, or somebody had was miscommunicating, or something had got. Well, crossed. people were miscommunicating. People were saying that that, that uh, the Empire State Building. You uh, heard that, did you? Yeah, yeah. Because I remember I heard it from and the White House. I heard, I heard, uh, I heard it from my my mother picking me up from school. And I was like, "There's no way that happened. There's absolutely no way. You probably misheard. There was probably like a structural fault or a plane went down outside of New York. There's absolutely no way that the World Trade Center, that iconic building, is now gone. I just yeah. cannot fathom that." Yeah, I yeah I I I, I think I I, I probably. Um... Because th- these were the early days of Bush, so I probably tr- saw it through a prism of... What are we talking about? <laughs> but anyway, we were talking about, like, if aliens showed up right. and they ruined Stanley Kubrick's film, yeah. which was uninsured at the time, uh, would that affect the way that people look at the world? And uh, I, I think it would, but I don't think it would cause, a, like, events to be delayed or postponed or whatever. Like, yeah. I, I think it's that, like this is a movie about other aliens, not yeah. these aliens. Yeah, but I do think that's actually one of the things that the movie does capture quite well to tie it back to the movie that we're supposedly talking about is the sense of the the mundaneity of these interactions. Like, because the the discovery of this artifact should be this huge, momentous, incredible occasion, but instead, two thousand one sort of explores it through this very almost routine like approach. So you have like. Uh, Haywood Floyd going to the moon, like meeting with friends, holding a meeting. You've got the photographer in the meeting before anything's discussed, like just taking pictures because, you know, this is just the sort of thing that we do. It's standard operating procedure. They're going out to look at the thing and they're talking about sandwiches. You know, when they're when they're going into space, you know, sure, the scientists aren't properly briefed about it. But I mean, even then, there's a sense that none of this is as important as the fact that the computer's gone haywire and is trying to kill them. 
I think that like 2001 A Space Odyssey does that really well. It captures the idea that like the human experience is not momentous, gigantic, big moments. It's like the smaller moments in between. It's the smaller sort of interactions. It's the smaller sort of like the, the mundanity of it. The, the way the way the early early man uh, reacts to the monolith is very different to the way that that modern man uh, reacts to the monolith. There's yeah. no kind of hesitation or reluctance or fear. Yeah. Of it. And and there there is that sense that more kind of an arrogance. Yeah, which I think comes back because I think. We we never find out exactly what happened to the away team that went out to visit the site when it screeched. We see them sort of grasp their heads and sort of fall down. This the the um the red shirts. <laughs> <laughs> the red shirts who get an entire third of the film dedicated to themselves, pretty much. Yeah. But um, and then it generates a signal out towards Jupiter, which serves to guide man. Yeah. Towards it. Do you think that sort of stuff actually matters much? What stuff matters much? The kind of uh, conventional aspects of the movie like there is um this monolith has appeared on the moon oh. we're, we're 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 going to investigate it um it sent a message out to um to jupiter, to jupiter so we're going to follow so we're going to follow it i like that that stuff is not a big deal in the film yeah because that that feels like that feels almost like the point of the film it feels it feels like like mankind's reaction to something that it that the audience understands as being like transcendental and brilliant and magnificent and sort of beyond the capacity to speak yeah. and i think in some ways that's what the pre what the sort of the early sequence establishes like the early sequence infor- lets the audience know that the monolith is something special it's not just some random you know yeah. bit of square space dirt that they found i think that like the film captures that sense very well mankind's capacity to downplay the importance of things in favor of like in favor of routine in favor of procedure in favor of like the idea that like when we colonize the solar system and it's kind of interesting to watch 2001 now as opposed to like in 1968 when neither of us was alive but when spaceflight was going to be the next big thing by the way this uh, i've just discovered how um our discussion of 9-11 links back to 2001 space odyssey same year yeah what a coincidence um no conspiracy theories please andrew no No. conspiracy theories but i do think that um like i think that there is something to be said for that like the idea that mankind has colonized the solar system in 2001 space Odyssey, the point where something that was once magical and incredible and wondrous something that was like the final frontier something that kennedy sort of promised as the new frontier that it's become just something that is routine and sort of familiar and something that's guided by all this text and these signs and these guides and these procedures and these protocols and this sort of boring small talk and these video chats that like mankind has almost taken the wonder and the majesty out of space by rendering it something conventional and easily accessible i think that's sort of fascinating when well, you... i think there, there, it's important that there's no poor people in space <laughs> Important this, in the this, sense of the movie, or yeah. important in the sense of like it's important <laughs> to keep poor people out of space. This, 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 this when only Pan Am was flying <laughs> to, and Ryanair were were not yet um, yeah. off, off, offering flights to to yeah. the moon. Or well, to, to be Jupiter. fair, in nineteen sixty eight, air air travel was expensive, even within yeah. Earth's atmosphere. It's full of people in suits. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. People used to like <laughs> traveling. Used to be an occasion for people. Like you used to put on your Sunday best. I remember actually I was talking to somebody. Uh, I work in plastics. <laughs> yeah, but I remember I travel. I used to travel. Uh, I used to travel. I still travel with work, and I've traveled with people of an older generation than me. 
Right. And they talk about how crazy it is that people my age travel like we expect to be comfortable. It's like, no, you travel, you should look your best. You should be like, you're putting yourself out in the world. You should be, you know, you should dress to impress, even if you're going to be locked in an, you know, in a cabin you for nine hours. You do take it a bit too far, though. Like, in fairness, you do wear a dressing gown. You do this, like, um, dressing gown, slippers. Grease if they're lucky. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I find that sort of fascinating, that, like, the way that... The, the way that that's changed. But I do think that, like, it's interesting to look at, say, space Lucy, travel... light brownies. Sorry. It's interesting <laughs> to look at, say, space travel as presented in, like, movies from the 60s um, as compared to, like, now. Because I think in the 60s there was this impression that, like, the space race, that we were always going to be in space. Right. That we were going to, like, colonize the solar system. That we got to the moon, and the moon was going to be a staging post to get to Mars, and Mars was going to be a staging post to push further into the asteroid belt, and that, like, mankind would continue to push outwards in the same way that, like, Manifest Destiny continued to push westwards until it hit the Pacific. Yeah. And it's something like, when we see that sort of 60s science fiction from the perspective of, like, the modern world, where it's like, we went to the moon once, we went to the moon twice, we went to the moon three times, and then we haven't been back since, what, 1972? It's, yeah, it's funny that um, back then, the idea of, like, space travel and exploration was all about the kind of um, um, the, the potential of, of, of mankind and, yeah. and its ambition to kind of, like, uh, go there because it's there and, and because we can do it and yeah. because of like human we do not do these things because they are yeah. easy we do them because they are hard yeah exactly and and to 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 to, to reach for the sky kind of um, both literally and metaphorically but now the um, when we think of space travel it's to escape this world that we've destroyed <laughs> <laughs> it's the last desperate chance. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, um, even Interstellar sort of does that as well, yeah? Just... Yeah, no, absolutely. It's always kind of, or, or in uh, Wally. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the... We turn the planet into a garbage heap, so we yeah. start spreading ourselves across the across the sky like some sort of plague. Yeah. The, but it's, I... it, it's it's gone from 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 a very kind of um, I guess optimistic sort of uh, view of, of of mankind as as um, seeking out. New um, life and new, new civilizations. civilizations. To to being like this this plague that will seep slowly outwards, oozing, oozing, oozing into the solar system. But I do think there's something sort of fascinating in that in that juxtaposition of it. You know, I do think that there is something like I think 2001: Space Odyssey is a product of its time in the sense that like it captures the idea of space as it existed in 1968 as opposed to how it exists now. Because I think yeah. you are very right when you say that about like mankind escaping the planet. Because even Interstellar. Which I think in many ways is like an ode to 60s optimism and space exploration. Yeah. It's also very much about mankind was born on Earth. It was not meant to die here. It's like we have to get the hell off this planet because we've ruined it. Uh, it's not like let's go out there for the sake of seeing new worlds. To escape crummy worlds. And, yeah, and, and crumbling civilizations. And crumbling civilizations. Well, I mean, yeah, there's also, there's also an argument to be made about the Star Trek franchise as well. Because the Star Trek franchise... Around about the turn of the millennium, it stopped looking forward and outwards. It stopped pushing further into the future. And instead, it started cannibalizing itself and bouncing backwards. So you had the prequel and Enterprise. You had the reboots, which went back to Kirk and Spock. And even Star Trek Discovery now is about going back to the period of Kirk and Spock. Yeah, I, I, I find the, 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 um, the interesting thing about, about those new... Um, just to talk about Star Trek uh, briefly, the interesting thing about those new kind of developments in Star Trek, whether with Enterprise 
with the J.J. Abrams movies or presumably now, yeah. with Discovery is that they're all crap and I hate them and they can go right to hell. I disagree with most of that statement. Uh, the first two seasons of Enterprise are pretty terrible. Um, I don't mind the Abrams movies. I think they're enjoyable popcorn Star Trek. They're not good Star Trek. They're not great Star Trek. But they're perfectly serviceable as far Get as... Get that, that enjoyable popcorn the hell away from me. <laughs> I, I don't want to enjoy my movie, thank you very no, much. No, no. But, um, so Andrew, did you like 2001 Space Odyssey? Yeah, yeah, I quite liked it. And and I didn't feel too bad about falling asleep during it either. Well, let's, let's talk a bit about Hal then, right? Because I think when we talked a bit about how the characters are all very straightforward, then there's an argument that Hal... It's a very discursive episode. This really is, isn't it? Hal is the most human character in the film it could legitimately be argued he's certainly the most iconic and memorable no darren he's he's a computer no okay there's no, this thing called they, metaphors they, this, no he, when you make a comparison without using the word like or else no he's very literal minded um like the the red little little the red eye you you didn't think that was a person did you hiding behind the computer he's a computer wait what yeah. No, the files are in the computer, Andrew. No, no. I, I, how, how can you say he's the most human human character? He's the character who actually has a personality. Very, 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 very well um, established that he's, he's a computer. He's a circuit board. Well, quite advanced. He's, uh, he's, 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 he's certainly not a human being. I, I'd like to distance myself. From Darren's from... misinterpretation of the film. Yeah, what do you think I am? Would you would you say I'm a, I'm I'm a human being or, or or more of say a computer? I'd say you're a human being, which is why I said I did not say that Hal was a human being. I said Hal was the most human. This character. is what I have to live with. Um, the, well, not live with, but record with on a frequent basis. Um, but sorry, is it put 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 up with? The, the, the... <laughs> I feel loved. I always feel loved when I record these podcast episodes. No, no, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm being, um, I'm being obtuse. Yes, I, 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 I understand what you mean. <laughs> Even if I'm not going to acknowledge it, but I do think that there's an argument made that Hal is the most sympathetic of characters, then, or perhaps the most nuanced. He's a character whose psychology we perhaps most understand. I don't know. I, 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 I associate more with the ape at the beginning. Is like be, being with, with the smashing, yeah, the yeah. killing of meat and the yeah, uh, yeah. the smashing of skulls. You know, all of the all of the homicidal characters, I, I, I have so no should, problem associating. What with. What about Hal? Yeah. Then you should really yeah. get along with Hal. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's anyone in between. Um, <laughs> and they're just sort of eating up space, really. Yeah, but I do think that, um, like, how you just feel like a god when you're killing. Yeah. It's, it's it's uncanny. And when you're you're just like out of breath and sweating, and there's like viscera all over your face. There's there, there's really nothing like it. But but Hal is in in in, in many ways, um, yeah, the most human of um, of characters. Of but characters. I do think that, um, like, cause cause Hal is the character who questions, who seems to question what he's doing and why he's doing it. Like, there's the great season, there's the great scene where he actually asks his his astronaut companions like questions about what they're doing and why they're doing and what they think about the mission that they've been asked to do. And there's a sense that like when Hal does that. Like, that's the first time that Bowman has actually thought about the mission that he's doing. 
Like, you get the sense that the human characters in 2001 are almost machines. They're like cogs in this sort of framework that exists. This sort of, like, uh, interstellar human empire. This sort of, well, not interstellar, but this sort of deep space human sort of consciousness. Like, they serve a function. And they, they fill these roles. But they don't necessarily think outside of that. Yeah. And, and that Hal is different because Hal actually goes to the hassle of thinking about this. And this is one of the things that is a, a measure of controversy or discussion. Like, people wonder why Hal malfunctions. And although there's nothing in... You think Hal malfunctions? You, you think that trying to kill the, the staff is a reasonable response? Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel, I feel, I feel like that. Uh, well, there, there, there's a certain reading of the movie that suggests that Hal has figured out that um, the aims of the mission will will be better achieved um, with without, without the, impe- the impediment of, of an organic crew. Yeah, well, I mean, there's also the interpretation that Hal is familiar with the briefing that's been sent. And it's never explicitly stated. I think it may have been implied in some of the other drafts, and it's implied from the fact that, like, when Hal is taken offline at the end, the last thing he does is play the top-secret briefing that explains what the mission is. So there's a sense there's that Hal perhaps is conflicted by what he's doing. Like, So he's been asked to care for the crew on one hand, but he's also been asked to keep this mission top-secret from them on the other, not to inform them of where they're going, what they're stepping into, and what they're committing to. Right. There's a sense that this sort of has created like a dichotomy within him. This has sort of split his mind and broken him in a way that, you know, the human characters never really have that same conflict because they don't really think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Okay. Well, that, that's one interpretation. I'm not sure if I entirely believe it. I think I think there's an argument to be made for it based on like Kubrick's fascination, Kubrick's view of humanity and sort of the way in which, as, as we've pointed out, like the human characters in 2001 are very much like machines. They're very much sort of like, they're not really characters so much as like plot functions, you know? Okay. Whereas Hal is is actually a character. Hal feels like he has a distinct personality and identity. Yeah. Which I don't think that, say, Bowman, Bowman has, for example. No. Or I don't think that Floyd has, for example. Yeah. You know? But I, I do think, like, and that's, it's it's one of the great sequences in the movie is, is Hal going berserk and deciding to kill the crew. Yeah. Yeah. No argument out of me. Uh-huh. But I, I do think that it's, and it, it does give you some of the most iconic sequences, some of the best dialogue, the great uh, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Although I did love that they rotated the pod. So that if we're going to have this conversation about shutting down Hal, let's make sure that while we're having a conversation where he can't hear us, we're going to turn around and face a camera so that he can lip read us Yeah. while we're doing it. Yeah, why on earth did they do that? Yeah, that's one of the things I'm not entirely sure why they did it that way. It is perhaps, like, that would have been the easiest possible, uh, like, that would make the movie a lot shorter. It'd be like, okay, so I'm going to take Hal offline, run some diagnostics. Uh, okay, cool. Beers afterwards? Let's get beers. Um, yeah. Those are the best movies. Where, where, not, where, where everything goes fine and nothing interesting happens. happens as a result. That really bugs me about the, the criticisms of, like, Prometheus. You know the movie Prometheus? <laughs> where everyone's like, God, those people in that movie are so stupid. I'm like, yes. Because if they weren't stupid, the movie wouldn't happen. Yeah. It's like, look, do you want a movie about creepy stuff happening on an alien planet? Alien planet? Well, then you're going to have to accept the fact that not all your characters are going to be like Fulbright scholars. Yeah. Uh, what should I do with this dark liquid, which I've never experienced before, but which seems to cause like strange reactions in anything that touches it? You should probably back away from it, go back to the spaceship, 
call in some guys, get some heavy-duty equipment down, get some yellow tape, we'll spend two, three weeks examining it, then after that we'll take some samples, run it locally. It's like, yes, that's the movie I want to see. Yeah. Um, I don't want to see the movie where stuff happens. No. No, because that's just boring. Yes. It's it's important when when watching a movie, yeah, that, that you have a little bit of, of, of drama. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Build interest in the audience. Yeah. When, when, sometimes when that's done sort of, it can feel a little bit artificial. Yeah. Like, like, like when they rotate the pod so that Hal can lip read them. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. necessary when, for the when, rest of the pod to happen. When, yeah, when 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 the drama seems to follow organically, I think is when 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 a when a movie or any kind of um, story yeah, uh, is, is 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 best. When when it when it seem when it seems like it's a kind of like an imposition of of the of uh, of the requirements of of. Um, yeah. Where the characters are secondary okay. and they're yeah. basically, where you can see the hand of the writer sort of moving the pieces around the chessboard. I do think yeah, it's not as satisfying. No, and I do think that that is, is one example of it, the bit where they rotate it around. Hmm. Um, but I do think there is something very touching. And even the scene where he where Bowman disconnects Hal and he starts seeing Daisy. Yeah. Like, there's something very sad and very affecting in that. Yeah, yeah, because um, you're thinking, oh, no, Hal, Hal doesn't know that he's not good at singing. And nobody's gonna tell him. Yeah, it's gonna be awkward. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope, I hope that Hal's friends are 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 at least honest with him. Yeah, but it does. It looks fantastic. The entire movie looks fantastic through that sequence. Yeah, but let's let's move on then to the final act of the film, Beyond the Infinite. This is the part yeah. where Andrew fell asleep. Yeah, I, f- I feel, I feel, yeah, I, f- I feel, I feel like there were there were there were, there were there were points at which I was I was not awake and rather asleep. <laughs> Somewhere on the line between the two, on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. It's not so much a binary position of being awake and asleep. It's more like there's a, there's gradations almost. I did, I did, like I didn't miss anything because I was in the room. I was there and, and I was physically present when this happened. Yeah, it's just that my eyes were closed and um, your brain was disengaged. Yeah, there was the part I liked about the 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 final kind of few scenes in the movie was the part where. Where I was, where I had a mohawk and was riding a unicorn, uh, because I was late getting to school and it was about to start, and I was trying to do my homework on the back. Um, yeah, I remember that bit as well. It made a very profound impact on me. Yeah. Um, I also quite like the bit that was blatantly ripped off for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Yeah. Um, and you want to talk about the influence that um, that Desmond Space obviously had. Like, there's a there's a really great piece from um, TV Guide in like nineteen in September nineteen sixty eight at the start of the, the third season of Star Trek when they're asking Leonard Nimoy what it was like to work on Star Trek and they're like, "Your special effects they're kind of a bit crummy, aren't they?" Like, I went to see 2001 Space Odyssey, and that looked amazing. Why can't your special effects look like that? I mean, it's TV. Well, that's it, exactly. That was, like, Leonard Nimoy's very polite reaction to that TV guide reporter. Um, because there was a scene where, like, it was in Ilan of Troyes, where I think they had a, a battle where they shoot a torpedo at a Klingon ship. Klingon ship shoots a torpedo back. And that took three months of post-production. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but it is, like, it's... A sense it gives you a sense of how far ahead of the curve the special effects in this were. Yeah, and like it, it became like a point of contention, the point where in the motion picture or the motionless picture, 
there's a sense that uh, Roddenberry like watched 2000. It's moving. It's just very slowly. It's like molasses. Uh, but I do like that. Like Roddenberry clearly watched 2001: A Space Odyssey. I was like, you know what we should do? We should do that again, but less abstract. And with characters from a 60s TV show. Let's make something very slow that's also very kind of lowbrow. Yeah, um, and also very familiar. And can we have a chick in it whose sexual powers are so potent that she has to take a vow of chastity? Yeah, and it'll be the first thing that she mentions. Yeah, not awkward at all. Yeah. But it is... Um, I, I do sort of like... I admire that, like... I'm, yeah, I, I made a point of saying that my my um, first day at work, when whenever I start somewhere, I say, um, I would like it to be noted that I do not have any vow of chastity. Um, yeah. <laughs> tends to get reactions. It tends to, yeah. Particularly um, when you walk into like, the middle of the cubicle farm and just yell it at the top of your voice. Yes. Yeah, we know. We, we get it, Andrew. Yeah. It's not it's not chastity by choice. People don't have any idea what we're talking about. No, we're, we're talking about the character of Elia from you, Star Trek The Motion Picture. The important thing is that you're asleep. Yeah. Um, and like like 2001 A Space Odyssey, you, you may have fallen asleep towards the end. Um, yeah. And Darren may be trying to steer the conversation to stuff you've actually paid attention to and watched. Yeah. But I do, I do think, like, it's a fantastic sequence. It's the moment where Bowman puts on the suit and ventures into this weird realm um and it's just this wonderful kind of kaleidoscopic light effect and I, I love how the camera like the camera basically shows you the stuff as bowman seeing it like the streaming of neon and sort of bright colors and greens and purples and sort of this this altered image of like uh, the camera swooping over landscapes and stuff and then it just keeps coming back to bowman's face and you can tell yeah. like the actor's direction was okay now you're really startled more startled more startled little more startled can you give me a little more startled oh. raise the eyebrows so what you're seeing now is beyond your comprehension yeah i want you to convey that in a yeah. very simple and straightforward manner yeah but um it is it's it's like it's it's astounding like it, it's you're having your mind blown and reconstructed um can you convey that to me in a simple head-on shot yeah, yeah. um actually here's something i've been thinking about because i was thinking about this while i was watching it do you think the monolith is a metaphor for the movie sphere, for the cinema sphere, in that it's something that alters your perception? It's it's like it's this observing well, force. It's like it's, it it appears I, I, and it watches and it basically. To I think me, there was some early version where it was like a film screen, um, and then they changed it to to be the the black monolith. Yeah, really? I may have been more that 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 was the vision of it in 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 the Sentinel. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I I do sort of I was sort of watching it. And I was thinking that because it is it's uh, it looks almost like a widescreen turned on its side. Right. And this sort of recurring metaphor of it watching and its sort of perception and the idea that it's it's just sort of standing there observing, but at the same time it's almost causing things to happen, in that it's almost like it's it's a window into the film. Like it, it's the idea of the characters almost getting a glimpse beyond, you know, beyond the realm of the film in which they find themselves. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm and, and 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 there's other people who say like it's um it's God. Um, well, I mean, Kubrick's Kubrick kind of talked about that as well. Like Kubrick uh, did an interview with Playboy. I actually love that people actually read Playboy for the articles, the Stanley Kubrick articles. Um, there's something in there for Daddy. Yeah. But he does say that, like, I will say that the God concept is at the heart of 2001, but not any traditional anthropomorphic image of God. 
I don't believe in any of Earth's monotheistic religions, but I do believe that one can construct an intriguing scientific definition of God once you accept the fact that there are approximately 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, that each star is a life-giving sun, and that there are approximately 100 billion galaxies in just the visible unit universe given a planet in a stable orbit not too hot and not too cold and given a few billion years of chance chemical reactions created by the interaction of the sun's energy on the planet's chemicals it's fairly certain that in one form or another we will eventually emerge it's reasonable to assume that there must be in fact countless billions of such planets where biological life has arisen and the odds of such of some proportion of such life developing intelligence are high now the sun is by no means an old star and its planets are mere children of the cosmic age so it seems like if there are billions of planets in the universe, not only were intelligent life on a lower scale than man, but other billions where it's approximately equal, and others still where it is hundreds of thousands of millions of years in advance of us. When you can think of the giant technological strides that man has made in a few millennia, less than a microsecond in the chronology of the universe, can you imagine the evolutionary development that much older life forms have taken? They may progress from biological species, which are fragile shells for the mind at best, into immortal machine entities, and then, over innumerable eons, they could emerge from that chrysalis of matter transformed into beings of pure energy and spirit. Their potentialities would be limitless, and their intelligence ungraspable by humans. It seems like he reveals a lot there about what 2001 is all about. Or what he sees it, yeah. Yeah, yeah sort of like his I, interpretation. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think he allows he allows for, the, the, for it to be a malleable thing that the audience can kind of take and interpret how they want but it but it's very clear from from yes. that 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 he has a a certain perspective or of perhaps about what he was trying to get across but not not in a not in a very um literal minded yeah, way yeah, or yeah, very yeah. sort of like very explicit way yeah because I, I do think that there is a lot of um i do think that like that that room for interpretation is compelling i think that like we talked about interstellar like interstellar very much borrows a lot of the iconography and imagery of it, like to the point where the computer, it has a sentient computer like hell. And those computers look a lot like the monolith because they're giant black square things. But even the idea of like an advanced technology, an advanced society helping guiding mankind is taken from Tadazan Space Odyssey. But like Interstellar is a lot more explicit about it. The, the idea is that it might actually be mankind's future selves reaching backwards through time. Right. Whereas I think that you can... That is perhaps one reading of 2001 Space Odyssey, that maybe the monolith is mankind reflecting back on itself, that it's it's like, because Bowman goes through, when Bowman goes to the room, goes into the room at the end, the weird hotel room, and he sort of sees himself at various stages of living, when he passes away in the bed, he's reborn as, as I think people call it the star child, but he's reborn as this almost embryonic life form. And there's this, yeah. this weird sense that perhaps he has transcended and maybe the monoliths are some alien society or maybe they're their mankind having transcended and looking back upon itself yeah and maybe it's like interstellar where they're trying to guide themselves forward like i like that there's there's that ambiguity there that there's that sort of like you can read it in pretty much any way you want and almost any reading can be validated if, if you're if you follow it through to its conclusions like if you can make sure that it makes logical sense it's it's a valid interpretation of events yeah like i like that the film doesn't insist on one singular interpretation yeah um and i think kubrick sort of talked about this because kubrick said it's basically it's like the way he sees art is is like the mona lisa it's like would the mona lisa be a better work of art if you knew exactly why she was smiling that way and his answer is no because you can imagine in that space Mm. you can imagine why she might be smiling you look at the picture and you see her smiling you think this is a woman who has a life that there's something more beyond it yeah (laughs) sorry (laughs) sorry Um, no absolutely 
But is there is there anything else that sort of jumps out at you about 2001 Space Odyssey? No, I I, I mean it's use of classical music, um, which is beautiful, by the way. It, yeah, it, and and it's arguable that like those those pieces of classical music are now forever associated with yeah. that, with those sequences. Rather than it's like Ode to Joy, it's hard to hear Ode to Joy without thinking of Die Hard. Or like the um, what's it called, the Knight's Dance from Prokofiev's uh, Romeo and Juliet. We think of um, the uh, the Apprentice, or um, like in like we wouldn't be able to. We we would hear kind of da dun da dun da dun da dun da dun da and we think oh the apprentice yeah. yeah yeah as opposed to like this is a piece of classical music like yeah. I think there's something to be said for the power of like wedding that that imagery to to sound um, and it's actually interesting because the soundtrack on 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 this Kubrick obviously he used a bunch of classical music but he also he had a whole soundtrack written for the film. That was based on or inspired by uh, by the work of of Legati, um, the, the composer Legati, who would also have done. He he used some of that music on The Shining as well. It's the familiar sort of the screaming sound. Star child, star child, you're a spiritual being. Yes, that's yeah. it exactly. <laughs> but um, you've transcended human consciousness. Coming soon, Darren and Andrew present 2001, the musical. But apparently, like, Hal, Hal, open the doors. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Yeah. But um, apparently he had this entire soundtrack composed based on the work of the Gatti. And then he decided, you know what? I'm actually just going to use the music that I was going to use anyway and throw away the soundtrack that was written for it. But apparently the Gatti was really ticked off because he only found out through his age. He heard about it through the Bavarian radio chorus. Uh, and attended a screening with a stopwatch to determine how much of his music had been used in this film. Uh, apparently, on, when he was on Desert Island Discs, he claimed that Kubrick used his music without his permission, which really upset Kubrick, because Kubrick went out of his way to get permission from his agents and to clear it with his agents to make sure the use was perfectly legal. Um, but let's take a look at where it is in the IMDb 250 at the moment. Oh, look at that! Look yeah. at that, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, history proves Andrew right. Yeah, it's just one space below a uh, full metal jacket. Which you prefer, actually, to 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. The star. I, I don't, actually. I, I'm kind of disappointed with that. And it's also below Amadeus as well. Um, in terms of movies that we've talked about, it's below uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And it's also, in terms of other Kubrick films, it's also below A Clockwork Orange. I can't believe we didn't talk about A Clockwork Orange earlier. I'm not a huge fan of A Clockwork Orange. Because I quite like it. And okay. I, again, um, the the use of classical music. Um... Oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, yeah, it, it's it's very, very, yeah. I just, I, well, we'll talk about it when we land on it, to be honest. Yeah. But it's currently, it's ranking, it ranks at number 90. In so, the, so it's in the top 100. Which is pretty impressive. It's yeah. two places above Singing in the Rain. It's two, Not a lot for Toy Story. Yeah, Toy Story 3 is at number 88. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is above Toy Story, which is, which, which, which is below. Which is at 93. 93. But I think yeah. we all accept that Toy I, Story 2 is the best of the trilogy, right? I think it's strange that there's two Toy Story movies in the top 100 movies of all time. And none of them are the good ones. <laughs> yeah, come at me, internet. Um, but no, I don't think... We say come at me, internet, a lot of them. We do, and the internet never comes at me. It's no, no, we're, we're... The internet is... We're, we're far too provocative for the internet. I feel like the internet is being we're very polite. We're trying to bait them. Yeah, we are. We need to play hard to guess. Yeah, we need to be coy. 
if anyone is listening, <laughs> don't come at us. Respond inter- to our distress signal. Which we're sending towards Jupiter. Yeah. All right, then, with that in mind, then we take a look at how the list has changed, the in and out chart. And since we've last recorded, there's been a number of entries and a number of absences. Um, in terms of movies that have come into the chart, we've had two come in and we've had, obviously, two drop out. So coming into the chart straight at number 221 is a movie we've talked about in the podcast. That's right. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Which we talked about. Uh, is the way you say it. <laughs> Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy Volume 2. I like that. Putting the emphasis on all the right words there. Um, <laughs> perfectly Shatner-esque delivery. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> um, and also coming back in, and it's a frequent, it's a frequent in and out. Has been out several in and out several times while we've been recording. Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> Curse of the Black Pearl. By the way, is it, was was why, it, why was it sound kind of Irish? Don't they? They sound sort of like working class European, I think, is what they're going for. Okay. I think that you could argue they're just as much Scottish as Irish. They sound sort of Celtic, I suppose. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I mean the, 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 um, they are. They have Javier Bardem in the most recent one, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah. He does not put on an Irish accent. No, he doesn't. Um, yeah, it's not a good film. And I do wonder if that's the reason why we've seen this creep back in, because I'm actually astounded by the love that there is for the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Yeah. Like, it astounds me that people seem to like it as much as they do. And I would argue the only good one is the first one. And it's not even that good. That's the one that's got back into the... It has, yeah. It, it's been... Basically, it's been in and out, like, since the since the series. Yeah, like, people who liked it when it came out, do they still like it? Well, they would seem to like to... Because like, what age were people when... Like, it feels like... That's well, 14 years ago, right? Yeah. So, like, maybe we, as 16-year-olds, might have might have enjoyed it or there might have been like i i hate to be too um re- reductive with this but but it was, there was a lot of appeal to um to young teenage girls who might have a crush on orlando bloom or johnny depp because yeah. this was a kind of a a childish kind of a movie and, yeah well, it was based on, it, a, on a ride in disneyland yeah but those people have now uh are, grown up yeah and they're um like in their in their 30s or yeah. And who's who's going back and watching the fifth, and who's 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 still rating uh, this movie that so highly? highly. Cause yeah, it, it's so it's not like it's become a classic. It's still that like Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yeah, and it's it's really strange because it's it's been in and out quite a lot, but it's it's not like it's been dancing around say two hundred forty nine a lot. Like it came in on release um, somewhere around two thirty, and then it dropped out, and then it came back in and went up to one eighty six. And it was sort of there for a couple of years and then it dropped out. And then it bounced back in around about 220-something. And then it dropped out for the better it's part of a year. With the, mo- with the sequels coming out, I wonder? That might actually, that would probably line up there exactly. Yeah. So people going back and watching the film and rating it highly, which is... Like, do you think that there are people who've never seen Pirates of the Caribbean before who go, well, look, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides is coming out. I should probably, like, catch up with this franchise. Yes. And then and then they've been like, Wow, this is fantastic. I can't believe I've never rated it on IMDB before. I can't believe I've never given it a ten on IMDB yeah. before. Now to set up my profile on IMDB. <laughs> well to be fair, it's wired into your Amazon account, your Google account and any other num- and your Twitter account and Facebook account. Really? Yeah, it's very easy to vote on, on IMDB, which is perhaps an issue. <laughs> um, say the guy's hosting an IMDB two fifty podcast. <laughs> one of whom has never to my mind, <laughs> actually rated a movie. I feel yet. like I might have um, 
it, it, I, I wonder if I've rated movies on Facebook. If I, if, <laughs> Does if, that count across? I know I used to do that a lot. I used to I used to rate um, uh, movies out of five on Facebook. I, I don't know. Like, no. I suppose put, if it's not out of ten, it's <laughs> unlikely to have any effect on the IMDb. No. And in order to make room for that, we've had two departures. We've had Get Out, which which we talked about, in the, which I talked about in the podcast. Yeah. Um, and we have PK, which is that that Indian film that's been sort of popping in and out as well. Okay. So I think with that in mind, then there's only one thing left to do. We have to pick the movie that we're going to watch uh, in two weeks' time. So with that in mind, we're going to go to the random number generator. Yep. We we have um, an independent um, adjudicator Popular from uh, KPMG. Um, uh, sponsors of this week's um, uh, podcast, and and no, they're 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 not the accountants. Um, they're 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 just another company with the same name. So, um, random number generator twist twist twists. Show us a movie on this list. And the number we come back with is number forty three. 43 what's what's number 43 it is terminator 2 judgment day oh my goodness it's a little scene indie film i'm not yeah. sure if you've heard about it the 43rd best movie of all time the, the 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 um in the top 50 not even the top 100 it's higher rated than the movie we just talked about yeah i, I know a lot of people will know terminator 2 as as the as the example of presumably a a, a movie being uh, a sequel being better than its uh, um, than its uh, what do you call it original? Andrew, I thought we said we weren't going to provoke the internet. Uh, would that provoke the? I thought we did want to provoke the internet. With Are that we... with that in mind, let's take a look at the trailer. Highland Police Station, 1984. You were there. Same model. These were taken today. You have to let me see my son. He's in great danger. New mission. Once, he was programmed to destroy the future. I don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission, get down, is to protect it. Come with me if you want to live. You're really real. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy. He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. Is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. You just can't go around killing people. Why? If you thought you had seen it all. Look again. Stay down! Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time, he's back. 
for good. Trust me. I feel like not enough trailer announcers these days are optimistic about the work that they do or enthused about what they do. In a word. Yeah, I miss those guys. But I do... What do you make of the trailer, actually? Because I have, I have strong feelings about the trailer. Well, um, I, we, we watched... Um... We watched a, a teaser as well. What, what, what often happens with these trailers is we have to try and figure out which definitive version we're going to... Which end, one will end, work on the... On end the... up watching a whole lot of weird fan edits. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, which and, one will and actually then, work on audio? Yeah, and then we settle on one that, that might not work on audio at all. But is the, <laughs> but yeah. at least official and proper. Yeah. But um, I... This is a great example of a trailer giving away far too much about a film. Yeah, because the, the teaser revealed very little. And I kind of, I really liked it because we were watching the teaser and because the teaser is basically the construction of the Terminator model. So from the, the chassis to the, the arms to the head, to the skin being put on to Schwarzenegger stepping out and looking at the camera. Yeah. And I thought it was very effective. It was very cheap. It looked really cheap, but it was, it was very like it conveyed what you think I needed. What, oh, yeah. The, 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 the... The thing is that, like, a, a trailer is doing two things. It's letting you know that the movie is coming, and it's also trying to 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 kind of give you some kind of reassurances of what the movie is going to be. Yeah. But it, it it can it can go beyond the point of of telling you that oh yeah dude, this this is going to be an action packed um, extravaganza yeah, with things yeah, that you're liking it. Yeah, did you like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first movie? Well, he's going to be back in this somehow. Um and but yeah. there can be a panic with and I think it happens a lot with tentpoles where studios have invested a lot of money. Um yeah. I think that with trailers you typically see them get very nervous. And like so for example to pick one from this summer, um The Mummy starring Tom Cruise, which is a movie that absolutely nobody's excited about. Yeah. But the trailers have given away absolutely everything in that movie. Yeah. Pretty much to the point where you which know it's good because like based on the trailer I don't really want to see it. So it's good that the trailer has 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 taken away my my um... your need or curiosity. Yeah. Well, I mean, but this is the thing with Terminator Two because Terminator Two, without getting too spoilery, there's a pretty big twist in the first half hour with regards to Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator, and it's set up very well in the film itself. And the trailer just sort of drops it out like it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. The trailer's just like, oh, by the way, Arnold Schwarzenegger's back, and you're like, okay, I'm interested. And he's good now. And somewhere James Cameron is like, I'm back, yeah. but I'm also good now. He's back for good. Which is a pun so cheesy that I almost allow it. But, um... I want you back for good. Want you back. Want you back. So, that's what we'll be doing next time. Next time. <laughs> Alright, what are you up to at the moment, Andrew? Um, what am I up to at the moment? Oh, no, not, 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 not a whole pile. Let's, um... I I'd like I'd like to 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 plug my 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 friend's new X Files book that'll be that'll be um av available next month. Novemberish. Novemberish? No, yeah. not yours. Um, no. Well, yeah. this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, Darren, Darren Darren's book. Um, but cool. Thank you very much. Um, and I would like to take a moment to plug Andrew's podcast that he's listening to at the moment. Um, you were listening to Norm Macdonald recently. Oh, no, McDonald's Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's um, there's no new episodes, but but there is a chance to kind of um, to, uh, to 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 catch up on some of the old ones. 
it's very it's very kind of old-fashioned way of doing comedy where a, a lot of it is just doing jokes and they're also very offensive jokes a, 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 a lot of the time which I, which I guess is kind of refreshing people people say um, these days that oh you can't say anything and of course you can um, you just it, have to face the consequences of it exactly exactly and 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 and, and the thing about it is it's good that that um, uh, that there are these kind of consciousnesses of uh, sorry uh, not consciousness this uh, consciousness yeah of 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 um, where we recognize when things are offensive and and when we're 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 aware of the right and wrong ways to say things um, but it's it, I think people tend to think oh so that means I can't say this yeah. and it's like no of course you can yeah. Yeah, you just yeah. have to face the consequences like an adult. Yeah, you? yeah, which, 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 which is why I, I, I enjoy when, 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 when something is, um, is um, offensive or risque like that, and um, um, but you can't kind of help but, 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 but laugh, and and I also accept the criticisms that 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 yeah. something like that might face. Well, I mean, like I, I'm gonna be honest, I entirely like respect. And that classic Voltaire quote, the idea that, you know, I may not agree with you, but it's it's your right to say what you want. Yeah. I do think that you're right when you say that there is a misinterpretation, that, like, freedom of speech is freedom of consequences from your speech. Oh. Like, I think that it's perfectly reasonable to call somebody out on what they say, yeah. but I think it's, like, it's perfectly okay to say what you want. It's just you have to accept that, you know, people react to it in the way that they react to it. Yeah. That would be my attitude. And I think that stuff like trying to censor free speech on campus yeah. is a terrible idea. And I, 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 th I think um, uh, pe people people are often um, people who do comedy. Um, it's become it's be it's become a concern about how um, how their um, comedy might be interpreted, or w whether 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 they might come across as politically correct. Which seems like it's not really the um, the, the proper place to be investigating uh, these these kinds of questions. Yeah. It seems like comedy is more about um, you know being 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 funny and 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 that so long as the um, object of your comedy is 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 um, well, this is punching down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As long as so you're long not as punching down. Yeah, yeah. If, if which is I think the best the best way yeah. I've heard that described is like the dynamic between. A, like it's okay for a comedian to pick on somebody who is more powerful than them. Yeah. It's not okay to pick or to victimize on on a minority or on somebody who is at a disadvantage. Yeah. You know? Um. But yeah. So I, I would sort of I would agree with that. Now I wouldn't. I think I've heard some of Norm Macdonald's jokes secondhand. They wouldn't appeal to to me. No. Personally, but I think it's it's great that it's out there, and I think it's it's very worth having that sort of discussion. So with that in mind, it's also a very kind of like. Talking about him as uh, uh, Norm Macdonald as uh, um, <laughs> a champion, now. yeah, as, as uh, a standard bearer, as if he's he's relevant today. I think I'm talking more in terms of it's kind of harkening back to to, to the old school yeah, approach. Yeah, yeah. I so don't worry, kids. Norm Macdonald like, is still <laughs> not relevant. Well. <laughs> No, it, 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 I like how this was supposed to be a book for him. It's supposed to be like I an endorsement. Yeah. like Andrew's listening to and enjoying Norm Macdonald. And what he's enjoying about Norm Macdonald is that he has no relevance to the world today. <laughs> it's completely out of touch. It was the first episodes. The, 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 his first guest is like, what are you doing? Why are you doing a podcast? Why aren't you on network television? 
This is a disgrace. You're a great man. You're funny. Why are you doing this podcast? There must be 50 people listening. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, um, I just find it funny. All right. Well, you can uh, hit us up on Twitter. You can hit Andrew up at A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A. Um, you can hit me up for recommendations of, of, of where to eat Mexican food or, um, or like, I don't, I don't know. Actually, don't follow me on Twitter, but do follow. The 250. Um, spelt with actual letters and stuff, uh, which is, is where we post updates and links and stuff. And we also occasionally take a look at the cool stuff about the INV's Dr. Nerfilis numbers. Raw figures, baby. Graphs and charts. and It's amazing. You it's, should, you should, it's so Moneyball. It is. You're so Moneyball. All right, take it easy, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye!